Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron. And this is our review for Class of 1984, starring Perry King, Marilyn Ross, Timothy Van Patten, Lisa Langlois, Stefan Arngrim, Al Waxman, Michael Fox, yes, that one, before the J, and Roddy McDowell. Directed by Mark L. Lester, released in 1982 on a budget of $4.3 million, grossed $6.9 million at the box office, considered nice. a cult favorite. Ron, this was your pick. Please uh, say why we're talking about Class of 1984. Well, it, it popped up on Shudder a few months ago, and as I was watching it, I was thinking, you know, there are a lot of 1980s dystopian high school movies like this. So I started to think of a few others as I was watching it, and this one is just so kind of crazy in, in, in the way it's structured that I just thought, you know, this is probably worth discussing because it reminds me a lot of several of the other movies that are going to be in this uh, little subgenre we're inventing. And it also was part of a wave of these dystopian high school movies that came out in the 80s. I'm sure you've you've seen them too, right, Jay? I've seen like Class of Nukem High or you know, some of that Return to Nukem High, some of that kind of stuff. I've seen The Warriors before, which we're going to talk about. I think I've seen parts of Streets of Fire before, which is the other one in this retrospective or mini retro we're doing. I had never seen this, though. I think I was vaguely aware of it because I did watch Riptide as a kid and watch reruns of it. So I knew Perry King. But um, and of course, Michael J. Fox. But I didn't know this was like his first movie before Family Ties and all that. stuff. matter of fact, this came out not long before Family Ties became a thing. And so it's so weird to see him because when the opening credits happened and I saw that, I was like, clearly not the real one. And then I saw him in the little band concert and I was like, oh, well, there he is with a chubby little face. What's up with that? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, one of a couple of surprises in this movie. When Roddy McDowell shows up, it's, it's always catches me by surprise, even though I've seen this like five times now. And amusingly enough, Mark Lester, the director, is behind some of the best 80s action movies out there. Specifically, uh, specifically, he's the director of Commando. Right. And when I saw that name, I was like, I know this from somewhere. So did a little search and then I saw Commando. I was like, yes, because that is I will say now, like that may never be an episode for us, but that is I'm a, such a huge mark for that movie and all of its glorious cheesiness and just the ridiculous stuff that Arnold does in that movie. It's so much fun. I, I yeah, I knew I knew that name. And the, but now anybody else in this movie uh, besides Riptide and that, forget it. Like, what's funny is after looking yeah. at Timothy Van Patten, because I was like, got to be Dick Van Patten's, you know, relative somehow. Sure enough, but yeah. I didn't realize like he he directed Game of Thrones episodes. It, he directed like the first one, like one of the best ones of all. <laughs> I'm like, holy cow, this guy's an accomplished behind the the uh, camera more than he is before. And he was a he was a big deal in the mid '80s because he was on the great, uh, you, you might know it from the Mystery Science Theater 3000 episodes, Master Ninja 1 and Master Ninja 2, but 
But he starred in Master Ninja as the little weaselly white kid who hung out with Lee Van Cleef and fought, and fought with uh, film strip favorite Sho Kasugi. I was going to ask you, is this guy like a stand-in for Michael Dudikoff? Because I got Dime Storm Michael Dudikoff, which is really <laughs> saying something, to be honest about it. Because yeah. he looks like him so much in so many of these scenes. It turns out they all fell victim to the ninja craze of the 80s. I mean, it's hard not to, right? I mean, yeah, I saw Roddy McDowell too, and that and that was an immediate smile on my face because I love him. I mean, Fright Night and so many other things he's done, but I mean, I think my go-to in a lot of people's is going to be Fright Night, and that is one that we will have to get around to one day on this show because I don't know how we've missed it after all these years. That's such a huge movie uh, in my catalog, but yeah, Class of '84, uh, different one for me, but I was hooked by the what I assume was the VHS cover art that's on Amazon now, uh, where you have this. Peter King's face and he's all cut up and bloody. He looks like John McClane and he's coming through the, you know, the uh, screen like he's about to punch something and there's all this chaos happening behind him and you've got like the punk rock kids on either side and I'm like, okay, this this could be fun. And what I didn't realize is that it's like an 80s remake of Blackboard Jungle or it's like the proto stand and deliver Dangerous Minds without the uplifting white people save everything subplot. <laughs> yeah. It has one of my one of my all time favorite uh, box arts. Um, when I worked at the video store, I would walk past, past this one quite a bit, and I think that's where I actually saw it for the first time. Is because they still had VHS tapes. So back in the VHS section, I think I might have gotten it then. But yeah, this is very much of the times. And while on one hand you had movies where you know the white savior comes in, or you have was it Edward James Olmos who played uh, Jaime Escalante in Yep. So you've either got, you know, your teacher comes in and saves everything or you've got uh, your class of 1999 where the teacher is secretly a kill bot who murders a bunch of kids. <laughs> it's that or I thought of another one in, in this pile of things, too, like the principal with James Belushi and the substitute with Tom Berenger, which is just batshit crazy. In or, its own the right. <laughs> or the substitutes two, three and four with Treat Williams. Right. The dime store James Belushi. So yes, that's, that's what we have here. I, uh, yeah, I, I thought of all of those things. I'm like, I've seen this, my wife started watching this with me and she's like, what is this? And I described it as that. And then that was when she checked out. She was like, okay, I'm done. I'm going to go hit the treadmill, do something else. Uh, so she was not down for this, but I certainly was. I actually watched it twice for this review because being so new to it, I thought I need to try to consume this a couple times to make sure I get all of it. Turns out I probably was okay with just the one time run through, but at least I did get the gang members names right. I think uh, on the second time through, but we'll, we'll talk about that as we get into it. Ron, why don't you tell folks who may not be as familiar with this, or maybe it's been a while since they visited, what's the plot of Class of 1984? Andrew Norris, no relation to Chuck, is the new music teacher at dystopian inner city Lincoln High. On his first day, he makes fast friends with the more experienced Terry Corrigan, played by Roddy McDowell, who gives him a quick rundown of the way to survive. Carry a weapon if you can, and if you can't, Catch a quick case of horrible blindness about things like drugs being sold and students sneaking weapons into school past the metal detector. Back in 1982, metal detectors weren't everywhere, so that was kind of a shocking thing to see at the doors of the school. Lincoln, however, needs more than just a metal detector, as the school is covered with graffiti and a group of five thugs, led by Peter Stegman, played by Timothy Van Patten, run the halls, disrupt classes, sell drugs, pimp girls, and rule the school by force. They're kind of a five-man... Uh, crime syndicate in that way. However, 
Aside from the more thuggish types, the other kids like Michael No J Fox and uh, Aaron No and Denine, played by Aaron Noble, are interested in learning. Andrew, too dumb to listen to good advice, decides to put together an orchestra, but continues to run afoul of Stigman's crew, who follow him home and taunt him and his pregnant wife Diane, played by Mary Lynn Ross. Things only get worse from there as Andrew and Peter grow increasingly combative with one another. Things come to a head after Peter's gang kill all of Mr. Corgan's lab animals to get back at the snooping teachers. There's a bathroom confrontation, and Peter beats himself up, framing Mr. Norris for attacking him. Norris tries to clear things up with Stegman's single mother, only for her to get furious and throw him out of the apartment. As revenge, Norris does the ultimate act of cruelty. He smashes up Peter's beautiful cherry red 1969 Plymouth Fury. As revenge for the initial revenge, Stegman's gang of fat guy, shredded clothes, leather mohawk, and girl kick off a food fight as cover before having Michael J. Fox stabbed. Between the stabbing and the death of his animals, Terry goes crazy, hunts down the gang, and tries and fails to kill them by running them down with his car. The car explodes, blows up several more cars, and it's goodbye Rodney McDowell. The show, as they say, must go on. Andrew's orchestra is about to give their first concert. He's at school getting them ready, and Diane is getting ready at home. Peter's gang breaks into the Norse home and go all death wish on Diane, then take pictures of her being assaulted to give to Andrew while he's on the podium. Suddenly, the band isn't so important, and he runs off stage in hot pursuit of Peter's gang. He hunts them down and kills them, one by one, until he finally, ha- until he finally has a big battle with Peter on the roof. Peter falls through a skylight during the fight and gets hoisted by his own petard, strangling to death on the ropes over the stage. His corpse dangles center stage in full view of the audience, but Andrew, as a helpful Chiron explains, is never charged with the crime, because everyone who goes to Lincoln High knows that if you've got any kind of brain, you get a serious case of selective blindness when it comes to stuff like that. The sun sets and credits roll. That is an excellent summary of a much more convoluted than I thought it was going to be movie. And I thought we were going to get a movie of this this teacher pushed to the brink by the end of Act 1 and Act 2 and 3 were going to be him going Chuck Norris on all of these people. And th- no, it's that's all saved for the climax. And uh, yeah, it's I don't know. Um I, I'm watching this and I'm realizing, okay, they didn't have a huge budget. They had $4 million, which in 1982 is a decent amount of money for a movie like this. And I noticed something in the credits <clears throat> that our leading lady here is, uh, uh, oh God, what's her name? Uh, Marilyn Ross uh, in this movie serves as co-executive producer. And I, my understanding is executive producers are basically people that get money off the back end of something. And I can only think that that was the only way they can convince this poor woman to take this role where she's going to be, as you said, death wished upon by the end of this. And basically she gets to stay in the house until they drag her to the school at the very end, half beaten and naked. And that was my, my one thought is I thought, well, they, they must have had to sweeten the deal a little bit because I've never seen her or heard of her anywhere else. Yeah, it's probably one of those um... – Halle Berry deals where they gave her a little extra off the top in order to um, get the scenes that they want, so to speak. You know, I'm I'm watching this, though, and the thing that got me was the opening song kicks in. And you had told me before I watched this, like, okay, Alice Cooper does the theme song. I'm like, okay, cool. And I have an expectation when you tell me Alice Cooper's doing a song. All right. I'm thinking school's out. I'm thinking I'm even thinking, you know, the man behind the mask, you know, Friday the 13th, six. I did not expect this kind of synthy power ballad thing that he had going on here. And what I realized is that part of this movie wants you to feel 
for the quote bad guys in this because you talk about like their criminal enterprise. If if one teacher had just turned these kids onto like the FBLA, they might have taken a different route. Maybe it could have been dangerous minds. <laughs> that's a that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, they established pretty quickly on that uh, Peter is really a genius, but he's also very evil, I assume, because he is the child of a single mother. Uh, yeah, that's what they want a, you to believe, right? Well, yeah. I mean, it's the 80s. Um, yeah. Dads were either crucially important to child development or, or big dumb goofs. So, you know, if you don't have one, you got the other. But yeah, uh, and amusingly enough, later on, that uh, little piano piece was actually written by Timothy Van Patten. Yeah, I know. Like he comes into the rehearsal thing and of course they're just, you know, making havoc in the class. But I also noticed something in the second walkthrough, they all look really tired because they were trying out new strippers at the strip club they run all night. They were exhausted. They've been working all night. So they come in and this teacher's giving them a hard time and he's banging around on the piano acting like a you know coke head because he probably is on coke. And then he starts playing like this beautiful melody. On there, and it's like, I'm, but it reminded me of a scene in high school, not a co-kid that I knew or a troubled kid at all, but just not this random guy that you thought, how can this guy play the piano? And when he sat down to play it, we were all like, holy cow, where did that come from? It's just one of those natural talent things. And that's what you realize about Peter is he dresses like one of the gang members in the Beat It video, but he's really smart and really ambitious. He's just psychotic, too. Yeah, Uh Normally that kind of thing is, is uh, shuttled off into being a CEO, but I guess he doesn't really have that option at uh, 16 or 17 or however old he's supposed to be. Yeah, I know. I like some of his gang. I'm like, you could probably pass for 18. A couple of them. I'm like, you're at least 35. Like I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> sure that the, like the big guy with no Barnyard. shirt and yeah, there we go. Barnyard. And then the uh, torn up clothes guy that's shooting up heroin drugstore. Uh, drugstore. Yeah, yes. uh, it, are, are at least in their 30s <laughs> making this movie. Like they, they, and I know that's a trope of the 80s. Everybody was, you know, much older than what they were supposed to be, you know. But it's just it's funny to see that come out. But I don't know, man, like th- this movie has such evocative scenery. And we meet uh, good old uh, um, Arthur here, our new uh, teacher. Or excuse me, we meet good old Andrew Hiller, our Teacher who's driving like the old man mobile, you know, to to school. He's got the beard. He's got the top. All he didn't have was like the little, I don't know, like Argyle shirt or something like that going on with it. And he, well, he, wears, a, he wears a corduroy jacket later in the movie, if that makes you feel better. That is true. Yes, he does break into that. I wanted the jacket with the patches on the elbows. I kind of thought that would be making an appearance at some point. But he meets Roddy McDowell. He's just gotten a great dye job on his hair. And because you can see it fading in between the scenes. And (laughs) and they walk into what I can only describe as the high school from absolute hell where there's gang wars. But 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 the black kids who look like gang members are actually still picked on by the cops while the white kids with knives just get a pass. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it has it has so many uh implications for today's day and age it's definitely yeah, it was like, like that, that's it, been going on a while right yeah you know? it's, a, it's a prototypical uh it's the prototype for the stop and frisk it, in my yeah, program exactly. <laughs> yes yes so, but you're right now i'm glad you pointed that in the plot summary i didn't go to high school with metal detectors like i think our school resource officer that started maybe my junior year of high school had one in his office but i never saw him get it out 
you know, I mean, he, he walked around with a gun on his hip the whole time. If anybody had anything, they weren't going to try it in front of him. Uh, not because they thought he would actually do anything to him. It's just he was so Barney Five, he would have shot everything in the school. So, sorry, <laughs> Todd, you're not listening to this, but, I mean, that's how you were. So, <laughs> but, but, I mean, I, I was watching it going like, wow, yeah, you know, this this would have been something very evocative to show to an audience in 1982 and we got to think about 1982 so we think about the 1980s we kind of think about the back to the future version of the 1980s where everybody loves the 50s and everything's good and the economy rocks and all this kind of stuff in the early 1980s everything sucked because we were coming out of the 70s and we were coming off of cinematically like a really dark period of movies and pop culture yeah you're right jay that's uh that's a great point because this was, you know, what a few years after the great after the big recession they had in the seventies and the oil crisis. Yeah, and this is, you know, this is uh, about the same time that movies like Mad Max were getting made in different parts of the world. So it wasn't exactly the most like, you know, Ronald Reagan might have said it's warning in America, but it sure didn't feel like that for a lot of places. Yeah, exactly. Not in 1982, at least. And you know, this is set two years into its own future, but there's not much difference between 82 and 84. 84 is when everything kind of started turning around, if you want to you know, look at it. Uh, and then, you know, the back end of the 80s were what they were. But and that's what everybody remembers is the, the back end of things. They don't really remember the early part. And the early part has a lot more to do with the last few years of the 70s. And this movie in particular I mean, you drop Death Wish as a as a nice way to kind of refer to what happens to uh, Andrew's wife in this movie. But that was something that you were seeing more prevalent in films, too. I mean, Dirty Harry had that was kind of scenes in it. We've done that whole series at this point. I think at this point they would have been up to sudden impact almost. So which is the darkest of all of those movies. And so the idea of regular people becoming vigilantes and what it takes to push them over the edge is the joke. And Rodney McDowell and and. Uh, uh, Perry King had this whole conversation when he's telling him, you know, you got to grow a pair of blinders to be able to work here, kid. And he talks to him about, you got any good moves? You know, like, do you know anything how to do it? I think he says something about like, I swing a mean baton because he's the music teacher. So they've set this guy up to be the total nerd, uh, like, you know, not the physical violent type at all. And to watch him transform into, you know, uh, Paul Kiersey by the end of this. Yeah. It's, it's uh, kind of amazing. Cause I mean, I loved Riptide. I mean, that was an action show. This was before that, but you would look at Perry King and think, you know, action star, not the way he's dressed at least like he's kind of built and sort of tough. He's sort of a, well, I've used dime store on several people. He's the dime store Magnum PI. Cause that's kind of what Riptide was. And you can kind of see that here, but I wouldn't think of him as a fighter, more of as a lover and a thinker. Yeah, they definitely go out of their way to establish that he's not, definitely not uh, an aggressive, a, an aggressive type of person. Because he tries lots of different ways to, you know, have conversations with administrators to try to get something resolved uh, regarding the kids. And at every turn, they just he's just ignored or patronized to or told essentially to ignore it and it'll go away that kind of thing. So he's clearly established as uh, throughout the movie as being very, very idealistic and very, very unprepared for for the school that he's actually going to be in. Yeah. He has no idea what he's up against. And he also chooses the wrong things. I mean, there's a scene where Arthur and one of his friends, the Michael J. Fox character, 
uh, are buying, I don't know, PCP or something in the bathroom. And I thought I was watching an after school special. You know, it's like, man, we don't need that. You know, they're going back and forth. And what's funny is to watch this. You watch Michael J. Fox and you realize all the facial expressions that you know him from for all of his years as Alex P. Keaton and every other role he ever had where he's bouncing his eyebrows and kind of squirrels his voice up a little bit for you. He was doing this then. And I've just realized that's just how this guy talks apparently, because that's all he knows how to do. And it's funny to watch that little after school special go down. And when Andrew interrupts it in the bathroom there, he immediately believes the good kids from the band. They couldn't possibly be involved in this. And he goes right after the thugs. And I think now for the second time on this podcast, I've sounded like I'm defending Peter and his gang. I'm really not. They're horrible people. But from a certain point of view, you can realize like this is why they hate this guy, because he gave them absolutely no quarter from the beginning. Uh, it's it's a, it's a, you're coming across as a real uh, from my point of view, the Jedi are evil uh, sort of <laughs> sort of manner right now. But no, you're right. None of the uh, these kids, uh, any of the Peters gang, none of them seem to get any kind of break or any kind of positive reinforcement, just negative reinforcement. Yeah, and let's talk about the rest of that game. Well, we've kind of laid out who they are. I thought you had great names for them. Shirtless, Mohawk, Knife Guy, Girl. You know, like they all have these interesting little archetypes. I mean, you obviously the big guy is the muscle. And then you have like the squirrely muscle guy who's got the ripped off, you know, clothes and stuff. And then they recruit. Oh, he's got the uh, ripped off clothes isn't the isn't a muscle guy. Ripped off clothes is the chemist. Oh, is that what he is? Like, oh, no, are you talking about drugstore again? Yeah, drugstore is the guy with all oh, the ripped up I, clothes. I'm talking about the guy that, quote, tries out the stripper and beats up the black guy in the hallway. Oh, that's uh, <laughs> Leather Mohawk. Yes, Leather Mohawk. You have him, and then you have Girl, who's like Pinky Tuscadero, but from the other side. You know, she she's very mad. Like, I, you talk about Mad Max, she looked like something out of Mad Max. Yeah, she uh, she after this movie was made, that uh, that character survived and moved to Barter Town. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like that was her next her next piece uh, because as it is, Patsy is kind of a. I, I mean, is she with Peter or is she with one of the other guys? It comes. It feels like she just sort of works around the group. I don't know. It's very uncomfortable. My my take on Patsy was that uh, she was the cl- she's that classic. Uh, movie archetype of the untrustworthy bisexual because she's clearly into things like watching all of the sexual assaults and whatnot go down and trying out she you know she goes to watch them try out the uh, watch leather mohawk try out the the new prostitute coke whore uh, so my take on her was that she was kind of established as being a uh, you know, community property. She also, the way she goes after Aaron Flannery, when they confront uh, uh, Deneen and, and Arthur, uh, the Michael J. Fox character after school one day, and she breaks the bottle and then looks at her. Like, it looks like they cut away real quick. Cause it looked like she was about to lick her face. And they're like, okay, we can't like have that on screen. They're like, they got cut some back, but I, I could see that now that you say it, I hadn't thought of it, but that's an excellent point. Uh, so yeah, it's very, it's very interesting though, how Peter is totally in control of this crew. And he doesn't really have to wrangle them in line much. Like they fall in line pretty fast behind what he does and what he wants to do. And I don't know. It's, I guess it shows the mad genius that is Peter uh, as part of this character. And I'll give Timothy Van Patten some credit. 
he plays this a little over the top, like he's supposed to, but when he needs to dial back for a minute, like in the, in the scene where they're trying out the stripper or whatever, like he's very not, and you can tell he's not titillated by this. He's not interested. He's like, can I sell this? Is this going to work? Yeah. Okay. You know, I mean, he's, he's never really doing a ton of the violence himself until the very end. He usually has his thugs do it for him. Like any good leader does. You have your minions do all the problems. Yeah. And you're, you're right in pointing out that he, he seems more like a businessman than he does like a, a, a thug or, or an especially violent person. Although he, he holds his own in the uh, gang war that uh, takes place under the underpass. He does a, he does an equitable job of, of handling himself there, but yeah, he seems very profit motivated, which is kind of an interesting take on a, what's essentially a juvenile delinquent uh, character. So that, that was, that really was interesting uh, to me. And that's a good point. You can tell that at least at times in the movie thing, he does things because it's the thing you have to do, not because he gets any sort of, uh, pleasure out of it yeah i mean they beat up the the one black kid at the school because they catch him selling dope in the hallway to the girls too and like nope we're the only ones to get to do that here and you know he he has his thugs beat him up and then that starts the gang war and what i what i again you know the, the social commentary of it is the white kids attack the black kids in in the the gang war and then the cops show up to arrest the black kids and i can only think i bet you peter called called the cops before they showed up like he dropped the dime before they got there and the second he saw the sirens they took off and then you know julius's gang is there to take the fall because we never see them again yeah their uh, their escape was also pretty well planned too like they they seemed to be ready to go before <laughs> they, they to me they seemed ready to go before they heard the sirens like they were just waiting on the queue Yes. Yeah. And that could also be that the actors were waiting on the queue of the sirens because I don't, they may have like, we have one time to shoot this because the cops loaned us three cops for the afternoon. We've got to get this one take and that's it. And then we're going with it. Uh, we we got to talk about Rodney McDowell more though, as Korg and the drinking during the day biology teacher who carries the 45 in his briefcase and ultimately decides to teach class waving that 45 around. I, I really enjoyed watching him completely unravel as a human being, even though it's, it's a sad story and he goes down so sad. And even his wife says like, he'll never give it up, but he should, you know, he's, he's a tragic character in this, this film, but he's just so much fun. Yeah. He's having a, uh, Roddy McDowell's having a good time. It seems like, he, he, he seems to know what this material is and how to pitch himself to the material. And he really is a lot of fun while still being while still being able to put in a very effective performance. Uh, because, yeah, when he starts to unravel and, and starts, you know, like when he's grieving his animals and that kind of thing, it's really kind of sad. Like it's 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 weirdly mo- it's weirdly moving in a movie like this. It's a it's a strange little element. Oh yeah, we should say like Peter's gang, they take all of the like animals that are in cages that are there for experiments and science or whatever and they skin them and roast them and hang them up all over the place. Like it's it's an evocative scene to walk in and see the the horror of the classroom. Yeah, it's it's a lot. Um even in a movie like this where there are so many despicable people running around, it's still uh it's still hard to, to think about animal related violence. So 
much belated trigger warning there. Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, I mean, this movie is full of those. Uh, honestly, like from the very beginning, you're going to get a ton. I had a question for you because I couldn't find anything in the background of it. I didn't know if you knew where did they get a place that would let them graffiti it the way that they do. They couldn't have found a place that was like that and used it. So like what school or abandoned hospital or, or mental ward did they rent out in Canada to show this? Because they trashed this place. So it was filmed at Tech Central High School in Toronto, Canada. I don't know if they were going to burn it down after that or what, but or if they just like picked one hallway and just set dressed it to death, which they I, very well could have. They very well could have. But I mean, the outside of the school was destroyed, too. And I mean, it's clearly the same front steps. They didn't shoot that somewhere and then go somewhere else. So it's I don't know. It, I, I was amazed that they were allowed to do the damage that they do to this place. But you're probably right. It's probably just the one hallway because honestly, we really only see the. The one hallway that leads to the biology room, the music room, and the uh, whatever the uh, the one bathroom where they fight the kid in. So it's yeah, it's not like there's a ton of it. It's just I don't know. I was I was blown away by how the sets decorated. But I'll say this for a movie that is made on the cheap, and I mean again, four million dollars is a decent amount of budget in 1982. But this is still a cheap exploitation movie the cinematography in this actually isn't half bad i mean sometimes it's a little after school special but for the the time and day it looks pretty good and that's a testament to how well it was put together and clearly made by people that were trying to do something above maybe what the material would serve yeah and i mean it's not that the material is bad the material is just kind of you know trashy uh, yeah, aside and we, from that, we, it's still, you know, fairly decent because, I mean, one of the people who was involved in the script is your buddy from Fright Night, uh, Tom Holland. Yes, yes. Who I have listened to talk as a, about his time as a writer and things like that and having written this, the sequel to Psycho and sort of what he went through to write Psycho 2 and then how that led him to a lot of other things. Tom Holland's a very talented man. And writing and directing and doing the things he does. And when I saw his name in the credits, I was like, it's got to be the same one, right? And then I read it. I was like, oh, yes. Which, of course, establishes the Roddy McDowell connection, too, that I didn't think about. But, yeah, Tom Holland's fingerprints are all over this movie in almost every way. Because that's another hallmark of Tom Holland movies in a lot of ways is there's almost always at least one scene that is definitely going to make somebody incredibly uncomfortable. And it's put there specifically for that reason. Yes, well, there are a couple different scenes that kind of make me feel uncomfortable, but uh, so I have to know which one you're talking about specifically. I think, we're, well, really, I think there's two. It's the animal sacrifice scene, which we don't see what happens. We just see the aftermath. And I think it's also the gun waving scene in the classroom. That is a huge fear for people. And then, of course, the, mm -hmm. the assault on, on the teacher's wife, like Diane gets the worst of it. That goes without saying. But I really think that that gun in the classroom thing in 1982 that would have freaked a parent in the audience out to think that one, this teacher is drunk, not a hard stretch because we all have known those, but yeah. that they had a gun the whole time too. And just how, I don't know, like how on the edge some of these people might be. That's, that's as scary as anything else Peter and his gang do to me. And I think that's what Tom Holland is trying to show is that these crazy goes on both sides of the fence. Y'all. Yeah. It's, it's clearly everyone at the school seems like they're, either trying to put their head down and just try to get through it, which it seems to be most of the students, particularly the orchestra kids, uh, or they're either 
actively reveling in it or being worn to pieces by it. And, you know, it's it's pretty clear that Corrigan has been around at that school for a long, long time. And it's not until Norris gets involved that he gets pushed so far out of his comfort level or rather the strain of dealing with this new generation of kids is finally what pushes him out of the teaching profession um, or what would have pushed him out of the teaching profession had he not kind of lost his marbles. Uh, so to yeah, speak. exactly. Yeah. And trying to run over people with his car and have a spectacular car crash with two explosions, not just one. So, cause you know, you gotta have two in the eighties, man. So uh, you also had the like completely useless principle as part of this. And almost the other side, Al Waxman, the almost completely useless detective, like everywhere Andrew Miller turns for help. There is no help. Like there is, he's going to have to take up his own cause. And I, I think that's the, the part of the plot that I have the hardest time wrapping my head around. And I think it's because Perry King just comes off as so affable and nice that it's hard to think what would finally push this man over the brink. And what finally does is reasonable to think about, but the links he goes to, to take out these people, we'll talk about it when we get there is, I don't know, man, I have a hard time making that work. Like I almost wish this movie was such where Corrigan somehow survived that car crash and showed up at the, uh, rehearsal or that the orchestra uh, playing and then he sees uh, Miller's reaction to the the picture and he knows something's up and then the two of them like tag team to go after the gang Uh, but I think that Corrigan has to die in order to further push Norris in that direction Uh, because he no longer has the the guiding hand, the experience hand, that person that he can talk to to vent. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that does make sense because they do have that scene where they're having dinner together, like his family or and stuff. And, you know, he keeps telling him, like, you, you better start drinking or turning it on. You keep, he's, Corrigan's whole message is, hope you can survive longer than the last one, you know. And, you know, he's seen him come and go. And you wonder how he's survived as long as he has. And taking it and taking it and all that. It's, I don't know. It's, it's neat to see. I just kind of, I think I just wanted more Roddy McDowell. That's just my personal preference there, too. We got to talk about how the gang escalates against the music teacher here, though, because the first thing they do is they come by his house and they throw like pig's blood or stage blood or something all over his face. And the first time I saw this, I was like, holy cow, that just went from zero to 100 in a second. But then I realized it was, you know, quote, fake at the end. But they go from that to car bombing him. To then they you know they stab his favorite student in the lunchroom and then they go after his wife. So I mean this they they go from zero to twenty four to sixty eight to one hundred and thirty five like real quick. And they pace it out over the course of the movie. So it starts out as just little things, and, and slowly becomes more and more aggressive and more and more dangerous. So that way Norris. Norris is kind of pushed into uh, responding the way that he does. Yeah, well, it's kind of like the opposite of Death Wish. Death Wish, you've got the horrible thing out of the way in the first, like, 30 minutes or whatever. It's been a while since you've seen Death Wish. But you get the horrible thing out of the way in the first half of the movie, and you get a pretty traditional uh, chase and kill for the second and the third half of the movie. Uh, but in this one, it's it, it almost builds up like a horror movie rather than like a, a, a kind of a late 70s, early 80s revenge flick. You know what I'm saying? 
No, it totally does. And I think that's the Tom Holland influence on this. Is he? This is a dramatic uh, or overly dramatic dystopian action movie in a lot of ways. But Tom Holland has written this as a horror movie. And the way a horror movie works is we give you enough to know that there's danger in the beginning and it slowly but surely cranks itself forward as it goes. And every good horror film knows something is you got to do something in the first act that shocks people. And then in this, you keep establishing characters, you get in the second act and you got to get to a point where another awful thing happens. So in this movie, that's Michael J. Fox getting stabbed in the lunchroom. And then the third act is where all hell's got to break loose. And then our final girl, boy, whatever has to, you know, take up their own revenge or their own safety and take responsibility for what's happening. And, I, you know, it's not uncommon or that different from a lot of the better Friday the 13th movies and the way that they work. Um, and it, with at least when they had good protagonists to follow, and it wasn't just about Jason, you know, killing people that we all hate. Right. Because they do have, they do a good job of establishing that, like, Norris, Corrigan, and uh, what's Michael J. Fox's character's name? Arthur, Arthur, and Deneen, that these are all like good people just trying to do good things. Yeah, let's talk about Arthur, though, because he's there with his buddy who buys PCP or something and then climbs the flagpole and jumps off of it. Right. And that, that's also the act one, like sheer violent scene that really gets you shocked into reality. Because after that, like Arthur is like straight and narrow boy, except he's not going to rat anybody out because I think he knows what that means if he does. Yeah, he definitely knows what that means if you rat somebody out. But he just, but even then, he he's not like partaking of anything. He he's he's clearly not a participant, but he's merely a merely sort of a bystander, right? And you knew something bad was going to happen to him at some point. The gang is just tormenting him the whole time. Uh, you know, it's only that because. Corrigan and Miller roll up on them in the back alley there, wherever they're supposed to be that you know, they get saved maybe the first time and we get the first fight. And so I don't know. It's, it's neat how the violence escalates and escalates uh, we, that food fight though. I got to say again, for a bunch of bullies who are kind of numbskulls for the most part, and probably looked out of their minds on all kinds of substances they, they organized that hit like a prison movie. Like that was pretty good. Well, Peter organizes that hit like a prison movie. Let's not give these yes. other guys too much credit. Yeah, but they execute it. I mean, the coach is a genius, but if you don't have somebody to make the plays, it doesn't matter. That's true. That's a good point. And do we ever see Peter doing any drugs? No, I don't. And But I, I have to wonder if there were cut scenes where he's taking a bump here and there or something because at times he looks like he's just loped out of his head. Like, at the scene where he does the Jim Carrey liar liar kicks his own ass in the bathroom thing, <laughs> uh, which I'm, I'm now I'm, Carrey saw this movie and ripped that off. But when he does that, I'm like, man, the look on this dude's face is like he is he's clearly crazy. But I'm like, did he, did he take a bump before this? Because I mean, that's what that looks like. But I never saw him do anything. He doesn't seem to partake in anything. He doesn't partake in the stripper. He he finally does violence at the end when he you know, assaults Diane and then tries to cut her again when he's, uh, you know, on the rooftop with Andrew at the end of the movie. But no, I don't think we ever seen do drugs or really do anything directly. He's just orchestrating all of it. Yeah. He's, he's pulling the strings pretty clearly. And I guarantee you he's the one who drew up the, the hit on, uh, Arthur. Yeah. If there's one scene that I feel like is a little extra in this movie, it's when Andrew goes to visit Arthur in the hospital. 
And we, I don't know, I, that again felt very after school specialish for a little bit. Cause I don't know that Arthur tells him anything he doesn't already know or gets him to do anything forward. But you tell me if I missed something there. I don't think you missed anything there. I think they took a look at Michael J. Fox and realized, hey, this kid's got something special. We need to get him in this movie as. Uh, we need to get him in this movie more than we've got him. So they shot those hospital scenes for him. Something. The one thing they didn't get out of him was good you know, comedy because he's got great comedic timing. He always has. And that's the genius of Michael J. Fox is being able to zip those, you know, quick one liners or, or puns in like he did on, on family ties. I mean, that got him the gig on back to the future. And then they replayed that throughout his career being able to do that. But he does have that whole boy next door kind of charm. And what what gets him stabbed is the detective is talking to the music teacher. And the music teacher just introduces him to Arthur. And the gang sees him like, finally, he's ratting us out. We got to get him. But all the music teachers are going like, let me show you my prize student, which is really lame, by the way, because Deneen is by far the best musician. Yeah, <laughs> Deneen is definitely the better musician. She's definitely more skilled. I mean, she conducts the class at the end of the movie. Yeah, but she does I, Mr. Holland's opus at the end of it for it. But I do think <laughs> I do think you get a couple good glimpses of Michael J. Fox's comedic talent, particularly in his like little introduction scene where he's playing the trumpet and he says that I play tuba and he cracks off some little joke about, oh, uh, I've been playing this for years and nobody told me or, or whatever he says. That that really that really works and really gives you a glimpse of like what Michael J. Fox is going to become. Yeah, it's like watching Tom Cruise in Risky Business or something like that, you know, or in All the Right Moves. It's probably another one you want to watch him do dramatic work. And you know, again, that movie's melodramatic and too much in some places. But there's parts of it where you're like, yeah, this guy's actually got something and can act. And when he gets that fierce look in his face, particularly Cruise, like he can do it. You see him do. A, the Tom Cruise stuff. And then, you know, you see him do it for decades after and Michael J. Fox doing the same thing here. So you're right. He just get that one good scene uh, where he gets that, but the food fight goes down. It's all, you know, coming up to this climax here. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on the Diana salt cause it's heinous and it's supposed to be and all that. But the one part of it I took away from it was how they take her, the gang takes her makeup while everybody's having turns or whatever. And they all smear it across their face in some random way. Like somebody draws an eye patch. One gets a half face of, like, I don't know, camouflage or something I'm like, why's Diane got camo, but whatever. And Peter puts this red mark straight across his face. And I don't know, there's all kinds of weird stuff. And I wanted to ask you, like, what's the symbolism of not only are we going to take her, we're going to take her makeup and put it all on too. Well, I guess because she was putting makeup on when they, they busted in on her, right? Or she Yeah, was, that is true. Yeah, she was getting prepared for it. So I think they're just kind of mocking or mocking her and at the same time letting him know that, hey, we've all been in your house. We were all participants in this. That kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, as if the Polaroid wasn't enough that uh, uh, Patsy sticks down her shorts and then you know, pulls out and sends him right, you know, a little love gram right before the the show's about to start. And, you know, that's when the big chase goes down and the rampage. And we got to talk about the kills, man. And the, I mean, because this is the horror movie part where he goes on the the kill part here. I mean, we, we kill somebody with a circular saw in the shop class. We hit people with hammers. I mean, this thing gets violent. What, what, uh, Andrew decides to do to these people once he turns the switch on them. Yeah. That, that circular saw in particular is a, is a pretty gnarly kill. Um, and that, and it's, 
it, it in a lot of ways it makes me think of like I spit on your grave. Yes, because they seem to they seem to kind of crescendo and into something into a kill that's almost like anticlimactic because you get like here's a here's a, a guy getting killed with a circular saw here's you know a guy getting run over by a car and then another car drops on him and crushes him and then finally you've got he falls through uh, you know a skylight and, and accidentally hangs himself well a dr- drugstore gets lit on fire with a blowtorch and whatever's on the ground Gunpowder, yeah. Wiley Cody, whatever. I, I mean, yeah, that's pretty pretty rough. Yeah, that one was great. That one, that one was was great because I love a, a any I love any movie where a dude gets lit on fire. Yeah, props to the stunt man, by the way, because he's not wearing a lot of protective clothing, and that's full on fire on his body. Like that, that looked really, really good. I needed one thing that, like, I thought if this movie could have anything, there should have been one of those conversations between Andrew and Diane, where she's trying to get him to leave here, come back to my mother's with me, so we can have the baby and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, I won't leave my kids, and he should have dropped some line about like, I didn't leave my men when I was in Nam. I'm not going to leave these kids now, you know. Or something like that. we need to have. I needed him to have that backstory because it makes what he does make more sense because he does go full commando on these people at the end of this. And there's nothing about this guy that makes me think he would be physical or smart enough to figure out how to do the things he does to these people in this moment, even in a, you know, I spill in your grave last house on the left kind of way. Yeah. Although he, he's got, He's got the kind of physique that would suggest that he's got something in his past like that, though. I don't know if they needed to spell it out, because I think at that time and in that generation of people, you know, going to Vietnam was kind of a given. Mm-hmm. That is true. Maybe he could have done, maybe it could have even been that he led the Marine Corps band, but he still had to go through boot camp. So, I mean, you, you may think like those people aren't Marines. Oh, I hear you. They are. And can do all of that stuff. They just happen to have really good musical talent and got used in that way. But I, you know, I don't know. It would just would that would have made it a little more complete. It would have made it a little easier to, to go with. And I do think you're right. It it is a bit of an anticlimactic end when he punches Peter through the skylight, and Peter tries to do the Halloween resurrection thing or whatever here and appeal to to his teacher that he's done all these horrible things to only to try to stab him again and Peter gets out of the way or I guess that's the H2O ending either way but what I have a question for you is he falls on these ropes and like the ropes miraculously wrap in the perfect noose to hang him and I don't that that was uh, convenient like he couldn't just fall into the orchestra pit yeah that <laughs> that was a very convenient noose maybe it's <laughs> Maybe it's like the that uh, that Blumhouse movie, uh, The Gallows, where they're, they, where they're staging some sort of play about a guy that gets hanged later, and so they needed to have a noose laying around for him to just kind of accidentally get caught up on. It's either that or it's the Scream Two play that they were doing, where all the the set becomes you know violent apparitions that you can use to kill Timothy Oliphant and Laurie Metcalf. Spoiler alert, by the way, but uh, yeah. I don't know. It's it's a it's a wild ending. It's uh, I do love though that they linger on the shot um, of him you know, slowly turning around and his eyes all bulged out and he's clearly hung and there's everybody in shock of it in the in the room and they're watching it only to cut to that Chiron of like and nobody said anything because that's what you do in this town. 
yeah, that, <laughs> that was a really funny, uh, kind of a really out of, that was definitely a, a thing that was added on after some executive said, Hey, why doesn't he go? Does he go to jail for this or what? Yeah, it's got to be something, right? Like that, there had to be a conversation about this. Would be the one time that I mean, the cops were kind of already on to him anyway. They would they would be really on to him now. So we have to pay off the fact that the the town's sin is that they look the other way, so that they're going to look the other way this time too. While clearly he and his wife leave town and never come back. Yeah, I think he's kind of learned his lesson about reaching out to inner city kids. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, yeah, this is, yeah, we're not going to do another year here. Cause he talks about like, if I can make it through the year, I'll get the full contract and tenure or whatever. And I'm like, no, nah, that's not going to happen for you, man. You know, it's like clearly. And, uh, I don't know. I, it's, it's a, uh, the, the movie ends rather abruptly, kind of like the hanging happens. It just sort of happens. And then, and we're done. And all I can think is we're probably out of money. So at some point to do this, but <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, it does come to its end. And I think our podcast has hit there too, Ron. So it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for Class of 1984? Well, uh, one of the things you, you, you read about when you learn about Class of 1984 is that Mark Lester uh, considers this his best film. And that scene of uh, Roddy McDowell in the classroom with a gun is his favorite fi- thing that he's ever directed. So the director holds it in high esteem, and I can I can kind of see why it, it falls in the good but not great category to me. Uh, for a lot of the things that we've discussed, uh, the content is kind of hard to watch, uh, but there are a lot of good things to you know to recommend about this. If you're in the mood for like an '80s dystopian school movie, uh, this was one of the first of that ilk to take place specifically in a school. And it did influence later movies like uh, class of 1999 that we've talked about. And, you know, was such was hit enough that uh, class of Newcomb high came out after the fact. Uh, so in its way, it was a very influential movie for a very specific period of time. So with that in mind, I'm going to give it a medium popcorn but with uh, throw some uh, milk duds in there for extra, extra kind of surprise. So we're gonna go with a uh, with a medium popcorn. This movie to me is the kind of thing that it was right on the verge of being something really, really special. And then whether it was budget or inexperience or I don't know taste. It just quite misses that, whether it's sort of incomplete on some of the characters or it's too much of are, are we supposed to feel bad for Peter? Or are we not? You know, I, and, and too much of the music teacher becomes a ninja at the end of this. I don't know. There's a lot of unanswered stuff. That said, this is a movie that you can indeed watch and watch through and just kind of absorb as it is, because it doesn't ask you to put in a lot of thought to it. We've probably put a lot more brain power on it tonight than it maybe even deserves. But I think if you watch it with just the eye of understanding the time period it was made in and the kind of thing it was trying to make commentary about, 
you can find something enjoyable and interesting here. There's some of it that is very much hard to watch. It is very uncomfortable. But as I've said before, Tom Holland likes doing those things to you to make you feel uncomfortable because that's what he does. That's He's good at that, and he's good at writing it in a slick way. There's some real good – I mean this movie has better actors in it than it deserves for sure. And there's some fun performances. There's enough fun here to enjoy it even though it's not great. But it's pretty good. And so I'm going to give it a good medium popcorn, too. I think it's that good matinee medium uh, that's, you know, it's not too old. It's just right. The butter's right. Everything's good on it. So good medium popcorn and a way to start our high school dystopia rock and roll retrospective here. We're going to go back in time a few years for the next one, Rob. We're going to talk about The Warriors. And look, it's been a long time since I've seen this movie, but I have vivid memories of watching this and uh, being a part of it. So looking forward to talking about that one and then doing Streets of Fire uh, to wrap up our trilogy here. Yeah, I'm very excited to rewatch The Warriors, although any reason to watch The Warriors is a good one. And Streets of Fire is one of the biggest like surprise wildly entertaining movies that I've ever seen. So I'm really excited to to get you to watch that too for what I assume is your first time. Yeah, like I say, I think I've seen pieces of it before, but I've never watched it straight through. But Warriors is the one I'm most familiar with. So that'll be fun to go back to and then get to do something a little new next time around. Ron, where can folks find your stuff on the internet? What you're up to these days over in your writing world? You can find me at Den of Geek, as always at Den of Geek. Uh, I'm currently doing Westworld right now as of our recording. Westworld will probably be wrapped up by the time this airs. Uh, so I will probably be doing, if it comes out, Walking Dead, The World Beyond. The, uh, the third of the Walking Dead spinoffs. Uh, this one's set in the world of the dead where like a bunch of people are trying to make their way in this new reality after things have kind of calmed down a little bit. Uh, I'll be doing that one. And uh, other than that, I have no idea. I write the things they tell me. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you. Well, always fun. People check out Ron at uh, Dev Geek. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com, as well as feeds to everywhere you can subscribe to and download the show. Google, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, you name it, we're there. You can follow the show's social media at FilmstripPod on Twitter and Instagram and Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook. We appreciate your support. So until next time, for Ron, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, FilmstripPodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.